focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters, uh, Handan and uh, Che Ji-hee. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Uh, we are going to start things off uh, with the, of course, the upcoming funeral here. We are already getting messages here uh, from Polina Maldonado, who's over in the UK, who says, uh, Good evening, SJ and Korea Now Team. Happy Monday. I'm at the park. Watching the Queen's funeral on the big screen here. Uh, President Cree is already at the Church of Queen's funeral. Uh, that's right. We're going to start things off with that because President Yoon Sagir is in London uh, to attend the state funeral of late Queen Elizabeth II. That's going to begin uh, shortly at 7 p.m. Korea Standard Time. This is uh, less than an hour from now. What do we need to know so far when it comes to the Queen's funeral? Right. The state funeral will begin at 11 a.m. London time. That's 7 p.m. Korea time with a service in Westminster Abbey where the Queen was both married and later crowned as monarch more than 70 years ago. Some 500 dignitaries from across the globe will attend the funeral, including President Yoon Suk-yeol, U.S. President Biden and the prime ministers of Canada and Australia and the royals from other countries, including Japanese Emperor Naruhito and Jordan's King Abdullah II. On the eve of the funeral, President Yoon attended a welcoming reception hosted by King Charles III at the Buckingham Palace immediately upon his arrival in London. During the hour-long reception, the President and First Lady Kim Gon-hee met with King Charles III and expressed condolences. According to Press Secretary Kim Eun-hye, President Yoon said he will not be able to forget the queen who dedicated her life as a guardian of liberty and peace, saying South Korea is also mourning her death, sharing the grief. Yoon also congratulated King Charles on his ascension to the throne. King Charles expressed gratitude, thanking President Yoon for making a long trip to take part and rearranging his schedule to make time. The king introduced the royal family one by one, and the South Korean first couple was greeted by his wife, Queen Sort Camilla, his son Prince William, and William's wife Kate Middleton. Middleton, in particular, said that she hopes to visit South Korea one day if invited, as she's never been to the country. While King Charles also said that he would like an opportunity to visit again, noting his last visit was in 1992. President Yoon also briefly met with European leaders, including British Prime Minister Liz Truss. French President Emmanuel Macron and German President Frank Walter Steinmeier. He showed particular uh, big smiles when he met with President Biden, uh, saying that he looks forward to seeing him again soon at the UN General Assembly. After the funeral service, President Yoon is set to present medals to war veterans who took part in the Korean War before wrapping up his two-day trip to London. He will then head to New York for the UN General Assembly. Meanwhile, President Yoon was briefed about the latest of developments of Typhoon Namnadol that swept through Korea's southern regions. He urged for utmost efforts to minimize casualties and damage. Uh, we're getting a uh, live, uh, f- I guess, uh, 
information on what's going on right now with the funeral. Polina saying the President of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, now arrived at the Win uh, Westminster Abbey. Again, uh, there are a number of uh, world leaders that haven't invited, just like uh, she said. But also there's been a number of world leaders who weren't uh, invited to the funeral for obvious reasons here. Uh, we'll keep a close tab on the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, II uh, throughout the program. If there are any updates on this front, uh, we'll give you guys an update on that. Uh, in the meantime, four years ago today, uh, wow, it's already been four years, uh, the South Korean government under the previous Moon administration signed a joint military agreement with North Korea aimed at building mutual trust and settling cross-border tensions. Uh, now, the Defense Ministry spokesperson made comments regarding the pact, uh, warning the North of any further provocation. Uh, Gee, uh, tell us more about this. Sure. So, marking the first anniversary of the joint military agreement on Monday, uh, Defense Ministry Deputy Spokesperson Moon Hong-sik called for a mutual adherence to the declaration, which was signed on September 19, 2018. Now, the military said it would respond to any violation by North Korea of the agreement with the principle of reciprocity. Now, spokesperson Moon said mutual implementation of the agreement is essential to ease inter-Korean military tension and build trust. But if we recall the North's moves since the military agreement four years ago, uh, the regime has incessantly test-fired ballistic missiles in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, uh, as well as this agreement, and it exploded the inter-Korean liaison office in Kaesong in 2020 without any consent from South Korea, and uh, is claiming the ownership of Mount Kumgang tourism facilities built by South Korea, or dismantling uh, some of them, some of them. And Kim has not clearly uh, has not kept the promises he made no. made with Moon in 2018. Yes, and making things worse, uh, the regime under the leadership of Kim Jong Un has completed, reportedly completed its uh, preparations for a possible seventh nuclear test. And asked about any particular military movements north of the uh, border on the anniversary of the document signing, Joint Chiefs of Staff spokesperson Kim Jun-lak said the military is closely monitoring the situation following the North Korean military's summer training uh, while also maintaining its readiness posture. However, the spokesperson had no additional information regarding preparations by the regime uh, for a military parade ahead of the 77th anniversary of the founding of the ruling Workers' Party on October 10th. Uh, meanwhile, regarding this agreement, experts evaluate that the possibility of accidental clashes in the border area significantly reduced. Uh, that's the evaluation of some experts. Uh, again, I mean, just mentioned that I can't believe it's been four years, but uh, four years ago today and now four years later, uh, it's just a stark difference in things that uh, uh, the, the, I guess, the relations between the South Korea and North Korea right now. We've seen a uh, record number of provocations this year alone, uh, even a, a ballistic missile being fired by North Korea, which this whole... Uh, defense pact, uh, non-existent, <laughs> according to North Korea, the way that they've kind of been uh, uh, acting uh, this year. I, I want to kind of get that your take, uh, assessments and future strategy when it comes to the inter-Korean military agreement uh, four years after. Uh, Tan, let's start things off with you. 
You know, politicians, experts, and pundits, they all remain divided on the assessment of current intercurrent relations and how things should be from this point on, uh, you know, after uh, signing the military agreement four years ago. But I want to zoom in on the remarks made by Vice National Assembly Speaker and newly appointed chief of the ruling People Power Party's new emergency leadership committee, Chung jin Seok. You know, setting all other political issues and the widening rift between the ruling and the main opposition aside, I think he's made a very clear point that no one can deny that North Korea has been continuing to develop its nuclear program even during the friendly atmosphere under the Moon administration, defying all efforts made by South Korea and the U.S. and the international community. So we should know by now that no matter how hard we try, North Korea will never, ever give up its nuclear program. So uh, it's undeniable that the prospects of inter-Korean relations look dim to say the least. And I think what's more important for South Korea at this point is not just to wait for a change in North Korea's stance, but to further beef up our military capabilities against any type of North Korea threats and all forms of possible attacks. South Korea and the U.S. efforts to bolster U.S. extended deterrence and resuming operations of U.S. strategic assets on the peninsula can all be interpreted as part of efforts to boost military capabilities against the North. And so in in that sense, I think we are headed in the right direction. I know it's not an ideal way, but realistically speaking, many experts say that further boosting military power to curb North Korea provocations appears to be one of the most pragmatic options, uh, the most pragmatic approaches that we have to maintain security in the region at this point. Yeah, Tanya, I think you make a very good point. Uh, and this is that's actually something that I mentioned uh, last week is uh, I know there's still talks about denuclearization and, uh, you know, whether it be South Korea, the United States and Japan holding talks for, you know, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and things like that. I think now... The fact is, North Korea is not going to denuclearize, uh, for sure. Uh, they're going to use, they're going to try to make as many nuclear weapons as possible, and they're going to use it as deterrence. And I've also mentioned that I don't think North Korea is really going to use uh, any of their nuclear weapons. It's just going to be for uh, deterrence. So the most important thing at this time now is to ramp up their deterrence, right? The extended deterrence. How are we going to, uh, you know, answer to North Korea's continued provocations? How are we going to answer to uh, North Korea's continued nuclear development. Uh, There's even talks as far as to some experts saying eventually down the line, I mean, it's all going to be up on the United States, but eventually maybe South Korea also need to develop their own nuclear weapons. I wanted to include that in, yeah. in my... Uh, so but, um, it's tough. It's it's very difficult because it's not like South Korea can go, you know what, let's make nuclear weapons. Yeah. That opens up a whole other story. So that's why I didn't include that. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, right? That, that it's, not, it's not North Korea going, hey, don't do that. It's yeah. it's a matter of the United States going, <laughs> no, uh, we're not going to give you the uh, the permission to do so. And then if, if South Korea creates nuclear weapons and then Japan's going, whoa, 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 whoa. We want to make nuclear <laughs> weapons too. Uh, it's going to be chaotic. Um, but there are some experts saying that maybe long down the road, 
Uh, that's also a possibility. Uh, G, let's get your take on the inter-Korean military agreement four years after. All right. So earlier I said some experts believe that this joint military pact was quite effective in uh, curbing the uh, accidental clashes, military clashes along the border. But uh, I personally think, and we all know that, that it wasn't effective because uh, although there was an agreement that was made, it was uh, symbolic and not effective because of the uh, multiple incidents that occurred. Uh, Kim Jong-un had violated the agreement. Uh, if we go back to 2019, after that, the year afterwards. The fisheries uh, official. Yeah, right? the fisheries. Uh, and there was also the uh, the liaison office, which was bombed. <laughs> <That> was... <laughs> And uh, the and, and also after that, the South Korean military's defense capability against North Korea was also greatly weakened uh, because of all these series of uh, provocations. And uh, they say, I mean, the frontline corps to identify targets against North Korea dropped by a whopping 44 percent, our ability to do that. And uh, I mean... President Moon has recently, that was yesterday, I think, for the first time, delivered his first official message regarding this pact. That was his first message since March. Um, and he had once again emphasized that uh, we need to have a dialogue with North Korea in order to achieve peace. And we all know that, right? And he emphasized how effective this pact was, too. But we know that because of these series of provocations, it wasn't, in fact, effective. And we know that we are trying to, I mean, we know that dialogue is important and we're trying to get North Korea to come back to the dialogue uh, table, the negotiation table, but there is no mutual trust between the South and North right now. The situation is very different from the past. And like Talon said, even during the times when the atmosphere was very friendly, they have been continuing their development of the nuclear weapons. And so I don't know. I, I agree with Talon's stance that North Korea will not give up on all its nuclear tests and preparations, and it will use it as their deterrence method, no matter how hard we try to make them come to the negotiation table and engage in dialogue. To be honest with you, I think the reason why, uh, let's see, when was the, uh, the Hanoi summit? That was uh, back in 2018, right? right. So uh, about uh, over four years ago. Uh, I think North Korea, the reason why they were continuously developing their nuclear weapons despite this pact in place was this was their security. Uh, they needed some kind of security uh, some kind of leverage because they knew that the you know the United eventually it wasn't even up to South Korea and North Korea to work things out. It was eventually the United mm -hmm. States and North Korea to work things out, and obviously things didn't pan out the way that we wanted during the the Hanoi summit. And I think it was uh, due to the sanctions relief, right? That was a big thing, and you know they wanted denuclearization first and then sanctions later, uh, which caused the you know. I was one of those people that said, look, you know, we need to give North Korea a chance. Uh, I think we, uh, you know, I had hope that there could be a denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. I think North Korea had its chances. Uh, they're still refusing to hold any kind of dialogue. I think it's it's gone now. I don't know, you know, if this administration is going to continue to push for discussions with the North. I don't know if the next administration is going to discuss, uh, you know, North Korea related issues, but I think the ship has sailed. 
And I think it's now up to South Korea to start thinking, what are they going to do to kind of answer, respond to all these provocations right now? Because South Korea can't just continue to be a pushover. I mean, you know, we can't listen to everything that North Korea wants. It's like it's like raising a spoiled kid, right? You continue to you know feed them what they want. Eventually, they're not going to learn, and then you know that's what's happening. And unfortunately, North Korea plays by plays by their own rule. Uh, so, I mean, now it's time to you know play with by our rules, right? Uh, in the meantime, U.S. carrier, uh, aircraft carrier, USS Ronald Reagan uh, is going to arrive at the South Korean port city of Busan this week. Uh, South Korea and the U.S. are boosting deterrence against North Korea's renewed nuclear threats, just like we mentioned. Tan, uh, tell us more about this. Right. In the first display of U.S. strategic assets on the Korean Peninsula since South Korea and the U.S. resumed meetings of the EDSCG, or Extended Deterrence Strategy and Consultation Group, the USS Ronald Reagan, a forward-deployed aircraft carrier, will arrive in Busan this Friday. The USS Reagan will take part in a joint military drill set for the end of this month in the East Sea, which will mark the first in five years since the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier was involved in joint drills in 2017, after North Korea conducted its sixth nuclear test. The Reagan has a deck the size of three football fields, with nearly 80 aircraft on board, ranging from fighter jets to helicopters. It has a crew of 5,000. Now, earlier this month, the U.S. government released the photos and video clips of a joint exercise conducted by the U.S. and ROK Marine Corps in Cowan Province, dubbed the Korean Marine Exercise Program, or KMEP, drills, which concluded Thursday. The drills involved mobilization of South Korea and the U.S. Marines, South Korean fighter jets F-15K, F-A-50, and F-5, and the U.S. military C-130 transporters. The U.S. Air and Naval Gunfire Liaison Company that took part in the drills are known as the eyes and the years of the U.S. Marine Corps. After the drills, the U.S. military assessed that joint naval forces were trained to be proficient in areas of tactical air control and close air support. The KMEP drills have been held annually but were held low-key in the last three to four years considering inter-Korean relations. And all this only two weeks after South Korea and the U.S. wrapped up the Uzi Freedom Shield, their largest combined military exercises since 2017. So we can really see that the Allies are ramping up their deterrence against renewed North Korea threats, particularly its nuclear threat. There is absolutely no way at this time, this is not 19 to 50 anymore, that uh, South Korea, uh, their military is far more superior than the North Korean military right now, uh, not to mention with the alliance that you have with the United States and other allies. Uh, the show of force, I think this is the least you can do right now to kind of set things straight and tell North Korea that we're not, we're taking things seriously right now. Uh, but of course, this is all the more reason for North Korea to continue their nuclear weapons, and it's really unfortunate and all the while you know people in north korea's really uh, the, the the average citizens are the ones that's suffering the most here uh south korea's second vice foreign minister ito hoon left for new york on sunday this to discuss the ira which we have been discussing for some quite time now uh, not to mention other economic agendas between south korea and the united states uh, Chigi, let's get the updates on that Right. So before departing, Second Vice Foreign Minister Lee Do-hun, in charge of economic diplomacy, told reporters that he would meet key U.S. government figures, uh, including those of the State Department, NSC, and Congress, to discuss major economic agendas, including, of course, the IRA. 
Uh, Lee emphasized that the South Korean government has been responding in close collaboration with relevant ministries, as many people in the country are highly interested and concerned about the IRA at the moment. Now, Minister Lee is set to visit New York and Washington from Monday through September 23rd for a series of talks with officials, including Jose Fernandez, uh, Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment. And during the meetings, Lee is expected to highlight the need for uh, Washington to take concrete steps to address concerns in South Korea over the act, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which Korean automakers see as discriminatory against their products. Lee also added, citing the recent series of U.S. executive orders, that the two sides also plan to discuss the bioeconomy initiative and overseas investment review executive orders in order to understand their potential impact on Korean companies uh, in advance and prepare countermeasures as well. Now, the country's bio industry is also on alert following U.S. President Joe Biden's executive order on strengthening and expanding the scale of domestic production regarding the bio sector, uh, as this initiative can also have a significant effect on uh, biopharmaceutical companies that run their business mainly on contract manufacturing. And also in regard to all these uh, protectionist moves by the U.S., the South Korean foreign ministry in particular is continuously making efforts to minimize their negative impact. Uh, and, of course, that of the IRA in particular, including through the visits of the first and second vice foreign ministers to the U.S. Uh, meanwhile, last week, the first vice foreign minister, Cho Hyun-dong, had delivered the South Korean government's concerns regarding the IRA to Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman during the Extended Deterrence Strategy and Consultation Group meeting. mentioned this uh, last week, but I think the South Korean official, and any chance that they get, uh, they do need mm-hmm. to discuss with the Washington side in regards to the uh, the IRA because I mean it's, it's such a blow for the South Korean automakers and it's to me it sounds it, it seems like bullying right they, you know President Joe Biden has been focusing so much on America first America 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 he's also failing to understand that it, you know what he's been calling for was this tight knit cooperation alliance with some of its allies and uh, certainly not showing that right now uh, speaking of Joe Biden a very explicit message from the U.S. president this time uh, saying that the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the event of an attack by China. Now, this is not the first time he mentioned something like this, but Don, what are the implications of this? When asked in CBS 60 Minutes interview broadcast on Sunday whether the U.S. forces would defend Taiwan if China attacks, President Biden replied, yes, if, in fact, there was an unprecedented attack. When once again asked to clarify if he meant that unlike in Ukraine, U.S. forces, American men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion, Biden again replied, yes. SJ, it's the third time since October last year that President Biden uh, has gone further than Washington's official stance of sticking to its one China policy. And every time the White House later clarified that the U.S. policy towards Taiwan had not changed after being asked about the president's comment. And that was exactly the case this time as well. The White House said the president has said this before, including in Tokyo earlier this year. He also made clear then that our Taiwan policy hasn't changed and that that remains 
true. Now, as we know, the U.S. has long been walking a diplomatic tightrope over the issue of Taiwan and U.S. military involvement in the event of a Chinese invasion, maintaining its strategic ambiguity. Uh, Just as a piece of background information for our listeners, when the U.S. established diplomatic ties with China in 1979 and cut its ties with Taiwan, a law was made that allows providing means to Taiwan for self-defense and also leaves the door open to possible U.S. military intervention. And since then, the U.S. has maintained its strategic ambiguity. But President Biden's latest claim is seen by many as the president going further than Washington's longstanding stance, being very explicit about the involvement of U.S. troops to defend the self-ruled island if China attacks. And uh, in Sunday's interview, President Biden, however, reiterated that the U.S. was not encouraging Taiwan independence. He said there's a one China policy and Taiwan makes their own judgments on their independence. He said the U.S. is not moving uh, nor encouraging their being independent because that's their decision. Okay, so then how is this being perceived by uh, top officials in the United States? I mean, are they repeating kind of the same claims mentioned by the White House? You know, some say that President Biden's latest claims are nothing more than just a simple slip of the tongue, that it was just simply an improper remark. But others argue that this signals a change in U.S. policy towards China and Taiwan, which could have lasting impact in the region. Some politicians like former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton argue that Washington's strategic ambiguity is outdated and needs a change. Philip Davidson, former chief of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, also called for a change in the ambiguous Taiwan policy last year, warning of China's possible invasion of Taiwan within just six years. I mean, it's a pretty big statement for a slip of the tongue. I mean, this is literally a remark that could lead to a third world war, Mm -hmm. uh, really. And uh, you know China is going to respond to all this right now and uh, you know a lot of the experts that have mentioned it because again this is not the first time that Joe Biden has mentioned something like this I remember the first time he mentioned a lot of the experts were basically saying now is not a good time to kind of irk China at the moment because we still have this big thing going on in Ukraine right now with Russia they're still trying to deal with this uh, and uh, you know kind of irking China into doing something like, you know, sparking another potential war here. Uh, it's the last thing that the world needs at this time. But uh, it's, it's oh man, I mean, it's, it's tough, all the things that are going on right now in the world. Uh, traveling to Armenia to meet with the country's prime minister, uh, Nikol Pashinyan, uh, after fighting with Armenia and Azerbaijan erupted last week. Speaker Nancy Pelosi expressed, uh, expressed strong support for Armenia, condemning the illegal and deadly attacks by Azerbaijan. Gee, let's get more on this. Right. So speaking in the capital of Yerevan on Sunday, U.S. House of Representatives, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said her trip uh, had particular importance following the quote-unquote illegal and deadly attacks by Azerbaijan on Armenian territory that led to border clashes in which at least 155 troops from both sides were killed. Uh, Pelosi said it was clear that the border fighting was triggered by uh, the Azerbaijan side uh, on Armenia and the chronology of the conflicts should be clarified. While strongly condemning the attacks, Pelosi said the fact that this was initiated by the Azeris should be recognized. 
and the fight broke out uh, for your information on Tuesday, but each side has accused the other of provoking the clashes. And they've been locked in an armed standoff uh, over the Nagorno-Karabakh region for decades and fought a war over it in 2020 even. Uh, And that has left thousands of people dead. And according to analysts, uh, Azerbaijan took a further step in the latest fighting, however, attacking targets and entering Armenia's internationally recognized borders for the first time. And during her visit, Pelosi said that she wanted to convey, quote unquote, the strong and ongoing support of the United States for Armenia, but also called for a negotiated settlement. And uh, in a statement published on Sunday by the Azerbaijan Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it was described that uh, it described Pelosi's remarks as groundless and unfair and a serious blow to efforts to normalize relations between the two states. Uh, Meanwhile, the clashes were the biggest escalation in the border conflict since 2020, and that was when a truce was made by Russia, and Russia is Armenia's longtime protector. Uh, And it's also Armenia's major military ally and has peacekeepers along the contact line of Nagorno-Karabakh. The Armenian government said that it appealed to Russia to resolve the situation last week. And regarding this, the Russian foreign ministry said it had brokered a ceasefire within hours on Tuesday and called on both sides to respect the agreements that were made in 2020. I'm kind of mixed with this because, again, I mean, you're seeing another uh, American intervention in regards to this. But if Pelosi is going there trying to kind of, uh, you know, stop the fights and try to, you know, break them apart, uh, it, it's it's not really the right thing to show support for one side. I, I think that's going to cause more tensions. Uh, but uh, we'll always have to see what happens after this. And I also think it's really ironic uh, how Russia is, you know, in between the situation. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, oh my goodness, is this going to blow up into other regions now? Let's see. That's the other thing that's uh, kind of concerning here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go come back here to South Korea. To a four-day parliamentary audit kicking off today, starting with the field of uh, national politics here. Uh, Tom, let's get the highlights from today. Right. Today's uh, it was a mud fight from the get go, as I'm usual. Sure it would be, yeah. uh, today's uh, audit was attended by Prime Minister Han Dok Su, Unification Minister Kwon Yong Se, Justice Minister Han Dong Hun, and Minister of Interior and Safety Lee Sang Min. The main opposition lawmakers largely took aim at President Yoon Song Yeol pointing out the swirl of controversy surrounding the Yoon administration's handling of recent floods triggered by downpours and what they call the president's privatization of the presidential office. They also demanded an official investigation into the first lady Kim Gon-hee's various allegations. Prime Minister Han Dok-su in particular was grilled over the restoration of the prosecution's investigative rights and what some called a retaliatory investigation against uh, Democratic Party Chairman Lee Dae-myung. The ruling People Power Party, meanwhile, of course, uh, raised a focus on uh, judging the previous Moon administration, uh, raising questions about the uh, Moon administration's poor accounting and financial management of national renewable energy projects. The Policy Coordination Office has recently conducted a survey into the Moon administration's energy infrastructure funds, 
results of which showed poor management of the project funds. Tomorrow, the audit will focus on foreign and inter-Korean relations, and on Wednesday, it'll dissect the economic sector. Lawmakers will zoom in on educational and social and cultural issues on Thursday. Meanwhile, the ruling PPP elected five-term lawmaker Chu Ho-young as its new floor leader. Chu beat two-term lawmaker Lee Yong-ho with 61 out of 106 votes at a general meeting of the party members. Chu will serve as floor leader until April 2023. He's considered a moderate conservative polit- politician, less close to President Yoon compared with former floor leader Kwon Sung-dong. The election came less than a month after a court suspended his duties as the PPP's Emergency Leadership Committee chair last month, a decision seen as a victory for former party chairman Lee Jun-seok. PPP's internal rife looks far from over, though, as Lee has filed another injunction suit against the PPP leadership. The Seoul Southern District Court is set to hold a hearing on the case later this month. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole uh, case with uh, Lee Jun-seok is still going on. On right now, there's a huge rife between the, within the PPP, and I mentioned this also within, even with the uh, the Democratic Party within it, uh, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, you know rife as well. Uh, but the fact is, right now, I think um, I'm, I'm hoping. I, and, and you know what? The, these parliamentary audits, they're always like this. Uh, it's really you put it really in a good way. It's mudslinging uh, that's going back and forth, but. Uh, there's so many uh, things that are going on at hand right now, domestically, economically, mm. uh, still the COVID-19 pandemic uh, going on and things like that. And uh, hopefully uh, the two sides can really work together and uh, try to work at why were they you know, chosen? Why were they elected in the first place? Right. To you know, work for the people. And I think certainly there's so many things at, at hand here. Uh, not to mention, uh, after we had uh, Typhoon Himnamnor, another typhoon, uh, Namador, uh, hit the country this time mainly in the southeastern region, leaving one injured, uh, hundreds of others having been evacuated. Now, there were concerns that the typhoon may hit Busan earlier this morning, but instead kind of shifted its course towards uh, Japan. Uh, did pound some of the west southwestern region of the neighboring country. Gee, let's get the updates on this latest typhoon. Right, so strong winds brought on by Typhoon Namadur have toppled trees and caused power outages, especially in the southeastern Korea uh, region of Korea. And according to the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters, uh, this year's 14th typhoon with a central atmospheric pressure of 960 hectopascals and a maximum wind speed of 39 meters per second was moving north from near Japan's Kagoshima as of 6 a.m. today. And the typhoon has brought some 50 millimeters of rain in Korea's southeastern Gyeongsang region, including Busan and Ulsan. Uh, and Busan was also uh, experiencing strong winds of up to 33.9 meters per second. And Daegu has also seen strong winds and heavy rainfall. Uh, and a total of 772 people in North Gyeongsang, Busan, and elsewhere have evacuated for safety concerns. And over 100 households in Busan and Ulsan suffered power outages. And even some uh, 50 vessels as well as 33 train schedules have been canceled or rescheduled. Uh, and as of now, the storm is reportedly moving east along Japan's main island and is expected to reach the capital, Tokyo, on Tuesday. 
Meanwhile, the damage was especially severe in Kyushu of Japan, where the storm left one dead, 69 people injured. Uh, it flooded streets, smashed signboards, and broke windows. And more than 300,000 households, most of them in Kyushu again, were even without electricity as of early today. Really unfortunate with this. I mean, it's just a wave after wave of uh, typhoons right now. And again, I feel like it was just not too long ago when we're talking about him, and I'm sure a lot of the uh, areas that were hit here in Korea with this latest uh, typhoon were still kind of recuperating and mm. trying to still rebuild after the the Himnam Nor uh, hit. But uh, at least on the bright side, though, it wasn't as bad as uh, Himnam Nor. But at the same time, I just feel like you know th- this year these typhoons just getting stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Right? I know it's typhoon season, it's storm season, and stuff like that. But uh, I don't think we've talked about it to this extent in previous years mm-hmm. uh nevertheless guys thank you as always for your report and your insights on some of these issues please stay safe and we'll see you guys again thank you you can listen to korea now with me sj lee by downloading the arirang radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com so make sure you tune in mondays through fridays 6 p.m to 8 p.m korea time